Okay, well, we have some new folks up here. I uh, just want to introduce to you, first of all, uh, Dr. James Lindsay, uh, New Discourses. You Maybe you've seen him on Joe Rogan or Glenn Beck or Fox News or any number of different places. Um, he's been all over, but uh, we'll, we'll introduce him properly uh, before his session tonight, which I want to, the whole panel, would you all say that you do not want to miss Dr. Lindsay tonight at 7.30, right? You do not want to miss him, okay? Then as well, my wife, this is Saw O'Fallon, and uh, so she's not Irish, we understand that, but uh, Saw has a lot of great stories to tell. And then as well, Mike, Mike Zoe, and so am I saying that name properly? Okay, fantastic. Well, Mike is joining us as well. We're going to have a few questions for him. So we're going to get going on this panel, but first I want to throw a question, or just if I could have my wife kind of talk about this a little bit, is that there was an issue, and I think people don't understand this whole idea of fake news or misinformation or disinformation and so forth and propaganda that's being created. Uh, this was something that actually happened quite a bit uh, in Chinese communist China uh, back in the 1950s and 60s. And Saad, do you want to address that a little bit? Yes. Yes, I want to talk about Mao and how he provoked or he used fake news, especially in that swim of his in uh, July of 1966. He purposely had his own photographers take pictures of him uh, supposedly swimming in the in the Yangtze River, uh, the largest river in China. He did that uh, so that he can show people, or try to make people think that he's not a doddering old man. He's, yeah, he was 72 at the time, but he had just uh, been uh, removed from uh, top power because of that disastrous uh, famine. The Great Leap Forward was a train wreck and he lost face on that. And then plus, he was 72, so he wanted to carry out that uh, cultural revolution. So how does he do that? How does he get people to not look at him like some loser and some old geezer? What he did is that he had that uh, photo op, had pictures of him swimming um, in, in the river and had people with him, but he really didn't swim. He also staged a picture uh, with the Wuhan Yangtze Bridge, Yangtze River Bridge, to show that he was there. And uh, he had the state newspaper say that he swam about nine miles in just 65 minutes. This is a 72-year-old man. So what he wanted uh, people to think of him was that, hey, he was still uh, in great shape, he was re ready to fight, he was a warrior, so that's what he wanted to convey. Um, yeah, people outside of the country knew that this, this is bogus, but somehow the uh, impressionable youth bought into it. So his uh, using the fake news and state newspaper was like on the front page, you know, for all to see is that, wow, you know, Mao swam the Yangtze River nine miles in 65 minutes. You know, he's, he's ready, he's fighter, go follow him. But that was deception. And I want to say, you know, the American Maoism happening now, see a lot of fake news out there? And who are they targeting? You know, as uh, Xi calls them, the blue guards, right? Uh, trying to provoke global communism, and they're using that tactic. A lot of fake news out there. Mm. And uh, some of those platforms are in cahoots with the government. That's right. It's been, it's been exposed. Mm. So I guess uh, it's a charge for all of us to help our neighbors understand um, when, when they do see fake news or hear fake news to help correct them otherwise if they get misled, 
we can have another cultural revolution. Well, we are in the midst of one, but right. we, they don't need more recruits. Right. Well, I want to kind of go through now, uh, the panel, if you could just kind of, from what you see right now, uh, and I'm just going to throw this out, there's not going to be any particular order. The generation that you see now of Asian youth, uh, both from those between the ages of 14 to 18, and then as well from 19, early you know, college and you know, early adults and so forth, and then also even into their 40s, what do you see in terms of their understanding or their lack of understanding right now of what's happening around them and what happened with their parents and grandparents to come from China? Where do you see that and what do you see the issues being? To the panel. Well, they are taking, right. <laughs> taken by the uh, um, um, school system. One of the things I think what, what uh, people have been doing is they trust the institution too much. You know, you don't question when you send your kids to school. You know, you, you, you believe that the school will do the right thing. And thank God we have, uh, well, I can't say that, uh, that COVID actually is a uh, blessing in disguise. Without COVID, uh, most parents still have no clue what's been taught. And what's been taught is just so, so, so devastating. I've seen too many Chinese kids absolutely just like what Lily said, she was trying to educate her parents. And uh, they are trying to educate their parents right now and tell them that uh, they don't understand, that they have privilege just because they are successful. And they don't understand oppression because they are racist. So school, school is taking our children away from us. Hmm. Uh, I want to Mike. add some comments. Basically, it's not only happened to Asian children, also all younger generations. Oh, yeah, we, we understand that. I'm just saying, uh, uh, yeah. But, uh, I, you know, many people ask me how to deal with that. You know, number one, we need to recognize all children have good heart. They want to help the poor, the disadvantaged, that's good. But we need to also teach them, you know, we first say you have good heart. But second one to teach you, you need uh, develop ability, critical thinking, to really how to judge policy. For example, communism, right? You know, its state purpose is good to help all the poor people, but the results is terrible. Communists is starved or murdered almost 100 million people around the world, right? So we need to teach our children, judge the policy by the results, not by the state purpose. Results-based uh, totalitarianism is what they had, right? So, <laughs> Kathy, what, this is kind of something that's been a passion of yours, so tell us about that. Yeah, so we formed um, Agents for Liberty because of uh, our family. So there's uh, my generation with a lot of my cousins, um, same age group and, you know, same grandparents who fled communism, but yet why do one set of, you know, relatives think this way and another think that way. Um, but I think a lot of it does come down to education and our hopes as well is to remember the stories, remember um, you know, what our relatives have gone through and those who have been part of the cultural revolution to be able to remember those stories and, um, and make them real and to compare how those things that happened then are happening now. 
Um, it is, it's, it's difficult, I think, um, because you see it in media uh, so much and with the cancel culture. Um, I think that prevents people from speaking up and to actually say what they believe. So we just all have to, you know, if you know it's right, speak up, and that's going to raise other people to do the same. Well, to me, it's like uh, when the affirmative action by the Supreme Court got overturned, all the older generation, like my friends here, are celebrating while well, after nine years lawsuit, they won the case. They're quite the country, you saw the younger generation Aging Americans were holding sign like they believe in equity. It's like your parents fight so hard, save money for you to go to best school, and you're holding sign against themselves. So it, it's so I think fundamentally we need to do something as parents, as grandparents. If those schools are becoming indoctrination centers, who is willing to spend another fifty, sixty thousand dollars send them to Harvard, right? And, and uh, also, we we can walk with our money. We can exercise our control of our money. If Vanguard, BlackRock are promoting ESG, talk to your advisors. How many of my money are investing in their firms? With their funds, pull them out, pull somewhere else. People already moved from blue state to red state. So same thing with education, with our kids, school choice, homeschool, private school, charter school, do whatever we can to keep our kids like out of those indoctrination centers who might even hate you, demonize you, and don't talk to you later, and desert you, and then regret all their life later. That's the history that we try not to repeat here. Okay. I, I, I have to add this because I, it's important. It's the failure of a lot of Chinese parents. I myself fail to tell my child the history of the Chinese Communist Party. It is something I'd rather forget, and I try to forget, and I did not tell my son the horror of communism. I think a lot of the Chinese parents made the same mistake. That's what I'm doing now. That's what I'm trying to tell Americans now. Okay, James? Well, <clears throat> when I think about the young people uh, in this age group you're talking about, I think about the way the, the left incentivizes their behavior very successfully. and. The currency, I mean, we might think in terms of how do we build, if we're, we're in our kind of middle age, ouch, we think about how we might build a profession, build a business, build a home, build, you know, these kinds of very stable structures. If we're getting older, or how do we build a legacy? How do I leave something for my children, grandchildren, and so on? If we think about what are kids incentivized by, it's essentially how do I be cool? How do I fit in with the social group? How do I have social currency that means something? They don't have any, they don't have houses yet. They don't have material things that are, are, you know, big investments. They haven't built things yet. And so the, the American Marxists have been very successful at making uh, identity-based oppression the most valuable social currency for young people. And so they cobble together these identity groups. You all know about the acronym, the LGBTQ plus hot dog emoji one that you can dump kids into, and then they, they get positive social credit is what it boils down to. Uh, with their peers, uh, I could, we could go into lots of stories about that, but there's another six-letter acronym you may not have heard that is sometimes only give it with four, four letters, but it's A-A-N-H-P-I, and we're supposed to stop A-A-N-H-P-I hate. Now, N-H does not stand for New Hampshire, 
this is Asian American, uh, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander, as if those are one culture. I mean, this is literally like the start of a bad joke. You know, a Chinese American, a Japanese American, and a Korean American walk into a bar, and the bartender says, you all have the same culture. Um, if you know, you know. Uh, these are not the same culture, and they do not necessarily get along. There's not actually even such thing as an Asian American, if you look at it on the kind of cultural politics scene. They come from different backgrounds. But the, the idea is that they can create these kind of solidarity politics and get the kids to think of themselves as victims. So in addition to, and I agree completely with this point, that we must start educating our young people about the history and the truth and the realities and the horrors of communism, uh, which they don't know, so they get taken in by the sales pitch. They see the pretty picture on the outside of the box, and when they open up inside, they're going to find out that, that death is inside. What they also have to be taught about is this kind of victor over victim mentality. They have to understand that they can be whoever they want to be, not in the LGBTQ plus hot dog emoji sense, but they can, they can make of their lives what they want to make of their lives if they're willing to work hard, be successful, work with other people, do things. And it's not all about this victimhood identity culture. In fact, in the language, I know this is a slightly older room, but in the language of the kids, it's very cringe. To be cashing in on what you look like is cringe. And we, that, that's their slang. You should learn some of their slang. It helps you talking to them. That, I think, is actually going to be very important because the, the things that we want them to value, they have to grow into valuing. And so talking to them in terms of the language that they actually understand, the economy that they actually operate in, which is this social economy, which has been weaponized to radicalize them, is so important. So what they've done is created this, this, this opportunity for kids that can adopt any kind of banner of a minority, oppressed minority status, and now you're cool. But if you don't, you're some kind of a traitor or you're a boring person or whatever, the story with the LGBT earlier, uh, we did a thing at Turning Point last week down in West Palm and we asked, Charlie Kirk asked from the stage in a room of 700 young people, how many of you go to school in a social environment, these are high school and college kids, go to school in a social environment where it is considered cooler to be gay than straight and everybody raised their hand. The social experience that they're having is that it's cooler to be a victim than anything else. And until we start to break the spell as the older generation for the youngers, that, and they're getting reinforced at their schools, we have to break the spell that victim mentality is going to get you nowhere. It's really ugly. It's embarrassing. It's not in line with your dignity. If you're Christian, it's not in line with being made in the image of God. You've got to lift yourself up and stop thinking this way. If we don't do that, then we can't get them out of this kind of victimhood mindset because the victimhood mindset's incentivized. And I see that very strongly with the AANHPI. You know, we have to stop AANHPI hate. Stop AAPI hate was a huge democratic push while they were trying to uh, make sure they could continue discriminating against uh, Asians at Harvard. As a matter of fact, Ted Cruz put forth an amendment, nobody knows about this, he put forth an amendment when they were doing the stop AAPI hate fake bill that they put through and he said, okay, if you want to stop AAPI hate, let's make it illegal. Let's put an amendment in this bill you're passing, this symbolic bill. Let's put an amendment in it that says you cannot discriminate at all against anybody, including Asian Americans particularly, in college and university admissions, and every Democrat voted against it. Yep. Every single one. And so they've created a reservoir of like cultural cool to pretend that your life stinks. Meanwhile, they turn around and disenfranchise you on the other side with these campaigns like Stop AAPI Hate, 
where they're the ones that are actually doing the hate and then blaming it on everybody else. We've got to break that spell. Right. Saw, did you have something you wanted to... Oh, yes, uh, in talking about, you know, parents and to the children and um, teaching about the horrors of communism and Mao. Now, I will say my parents didn't teach me uh, about them when I was growing up. Uh, however, I overhear them talking uh, enough, um, you know, to each other where knowing that communism and you know, the communist was bad, but then also even at the name of Mao, uh, Mojaktum in uh, Cantonese, even just the name uh, gave, gave me chills, you know, in a bad way. It's just uh, the hair stand up because I knew bad man, you know, uh, a killer. So I, j I just hope that, you know, in our generation, we can have them know that the communism, you know, is, is so horrific that you know, even at the, the name of it and recognize it, and they have different names, but just to know it enough where, you know, the hair on the back of their neck should stand, you right. know, just like it did when I heard uh, Mao's name through my parents indirectly. Yeah, it's incredible that the name of Mao Zedong is not uh, met with disgust like the name of Hitler or Stalin or Lenin or some of the other uh, Robespierre. Um, all of these men were tyrants. Uh, all of these men in their own way were progressive in what they were trying to accomplish. But what I would go to is, is right, I want to go back to Mike for a moment and then I want Lily and Xi and everybody to kind of follow up and this is especially something that James Lindsay's been working on. James has a book that's available back there called The Marxification of Education, uh, which is an, an absolutely necessary book that you must, must read. Um, but Mike, tell us a little bit about the the case that uh, in the legislation that you just tried to get through and so forth and what's happened in terms of the discrimination against Asian Americans because they were excelling. So the whole idea is, is that we, we can't let Asian Americans get ahead of everybody else. We have to make sure that we suppress them and bring us down to this equitable level. So tell us a little bit about what you accomplished there. Uh, sure, uh, thank you. Basically, what are the radical left? They have so-called so racial equity, that kind of ideology. So they want equal results, similar to communism, right? So they found out Asians work very hard. They called overrepresented, right? So you know they began to use affirmative action to discriminate against Asian. Actually, Asian community already filed the first civil rights complaint against Harvard in 1988. And we launched grassroots movement uh, uh, recently in 2014. But in that year, Mr. Edward Bloom, who led the formed organization called Students for Fair Mission, and filed lawsuits against Harvard and the University of North Carolina, joined our fight, bring the resources, the top talents. What happened was the radical left you know, NPR started attack. Mr. Edward Bloom said he is right-wing activist. He does not represent Asian. So myself and a co-founder of ACE, Asian American Coalition for Education, we decide we need to speak out. You know, we know to change affirmative action, this kind of major law, you have to win not only the, uh, you know, the court of law, also in the court of public opinions. So we file civil rights complaint, we mobilize, you know, 
today, 360 Asian American organizations, we you know, change the public opinion, fight, and also encourage students to join the fight, organize rallies. So this is great so, uh, you know, example of how conservative and Asian community work together. Finally, we defeated the firm action. That is a great victory for Asian and all Americans. Good job. <laughs> well, also, um, besides the school indoctrination, I think uh, we have to really look at um, the um, media, the social media, really pointing our children's mind. Like, I know that the Chinese consulate actually are involved when they organize young aging Americans go out, hold a sign, stop aging hate, aging lives matter but silent when our children were discriminated. You know, I met this Chinese family in Colorado, worked their butt off running little restaurants, save $50,000 a year to put their kid into private school because Chinese for some reason just love the you know, Ivy League schools, you know, you get a good paying job. But at the same though, think about it, they come here like immigrants without nothing, only meritocracy, work hard, save money, then get it public and punished. You kids cannot go. They have to score even higher or you don't have right skin color. What kind of country is that? So I'm so glad to see that they truly organize hundreds of organizations from coast to coast and sue them. But the battle is not over. Like now they're trying to cancel tests. If you try and cancel the standardized test, the aging Americans, their scores, their merits cannot show. So what do you base on? It's like a China Mao cancel test. If you're turning over a blank sheet of paper, you're a hero. So it's based on what? Your red class, your workers, peasants, soldiers. You go to college. My dad could not read. Got recruited by the party to go to workers' college. He quit. He said, there are people a lot more qualified. I cannot even read, do my homework. I, I don't want to do this. So that's a typical. So they, Affirmative action is rooted in, in equity, CRT, Marxism, and communism. We just have to, in the course of public opinion, to educate people and keep speaking up and keep organizing rallies like that. Yeah, uh, maybe I want to make one comment. Actually, Asian Americans, all success, debunk many lies of radical left. For example, they say, this country is ruled by the white supremacy, but Asian Americans are the highest income, best educated, right? And then they, they, they say they try to help people of color, but democratic policy discriminates against Asian, right? So our success, you know, prove our traditional cultural value are in line with American value, and our, you know, success story really defeat the Democrats' radical left's narrative. That's one important point I want to make. Dr. Lindsay? Well, I mean, the, what Mike just said is absolutely crucial to understand, is that the Asian Americans are absolutely defeating the entire critical race theory narrative. That's why a friend of mine, Kenny Shu, wrote a book called An Inconvenient Minority that explains that the Asians are an inconvenient minority for their narrative. Uh, but what we have actually going on is this kind of same story of disgusting elitism that's taking place. The Communist Party, by the way, in every country, in every manifestation, is an elitist 
organization. They pretend they're on the side of the people, but they actually are on the side of themselves. And so they hold up the people so that they can actually become the new elite. They want to throw down the existing elite of a country so they can become the new elite that they then abuse all the power, make themselves rich, put everybody into starvation and poverty, murder anybody who disagrees with them, but they're actually making themselves the new elite. Well, this is actually the same mentality that's operating at Harvard and why they had to be sued. The problem is that what you have with Asian Americans in this country is that their parents have come over, young Asian Americans, their parents or grandparents have come over and they put in all their chips on education. They're like, you're gonna work hard, you're gonna get good grades, you're gonna go to a good school, you're gonna get a good job, and you're gonna, you know, live the American dream and lift our family out of previous circumstances or poverty or whatever else. But the problem is, is a lot of these kids are not well socially connected already. They're not part of the famous families. They're not big, important players. They're actually just smart, talented, and hardworking. In other words, they have merit. They can actually do things. And Harvard is mostly running a country club, or maybe more accurately, a hedge fund on kids. What they're doing is they're running a program where you come, we scratch your back to get you into Harvard, and in return, you scratch our back later. Well, merit doesn't actually square with that. It's an elitist training camp is what it actually is. They need to have their pants suit off of them because what it's doing is it's undercutting merit across the board. If our most elite colleges are no longer selecting for the most, I'll just yell. For the most talent, whoa, that one's louder. For the most talented kids, then what we're doing is we're undercutting the American uh, economy, the American future, and not just these kids. And so that's the thing they had to stop. They don't want low social connection. I mean, we're talking in New York City, for example, there's these very elite high schools. They're 100%, you take a test, you get in. The top 200 kids, they get in, period. They don't ask your name. It's, you have a number you put on, it's coded to you. You take the test, well, number 604 got the best score, so they're in, that's it. And then they look up and oh, this number 604 or whatever, some Asian kid from Bronx or whatever, so he gets to go to the school. Well, it turns out that in the past few years leading up to all this, this school turned out to have switched to about 70 some odd percent Asian kids. The uh, primarily Chinese American immigrants in, in New York City were banking hard on their kids to work really hard. But these kids were over 50% free and reduced lunches. They weren't elites, they were poor kids. They had parents who did not have a big social network. They couldn't connect you to the fancy judge or pull a favor with so-and-so. They were immigrants that came over and started a laundromat, or they came over and started a nail salon, or they came over and started a restaurant and worked their butts off so their kids could have a better future. And it just so happens that those kids are really talented and they worked really hard, and all of a sudden, those kids aren't that valuable to the Harvard elite set. And that's actually the corrupt crony game that affirmative action was defending and maintaining, and that the Democrats fought like hell to keep going. As a matter of fact, what are they doing right now? They're just going crazy saying that this is this huge kind of racist thing and they're, they're, they're doing the whole playbook again. This actually, I'd like to hear she talk about this. There's a related story where the state of Virginia, where she is from, is the only state in the country that's had the smarts to try to put forward that there should be, this is a separate issue, robust anti-communist education as a mandate in the public education system. And what happened? Straight up, every Democrat voted against it and they put out a media narrative, and this is what I'd love to hear she respond to, she didn't know I was gonna do this to her. The media narrative was it would stoke anti-Asian racism if we taught the history of communism in Virginia. 
And that was the reason that every Democrat voted against it, and so it didn't pass, because Virginia's too uh, narrowly purple still. And so I would love to hear what your thoughts are, that, that you know, teaching children in our schools about the history of communism is anti-Asian sentiment. Well, my reaction, my reaction, this is absurdity that is taking place in America. So we're going to fight, and we're going to reintroduce the bill, and we're going to try to make it pass. And I would love to go to Richmond and talk to those Democrats face to face. Uh, okay, uh, one more comment. One more comment, okay? Karl Marx is uh, white, is not Asian, okay? Communist was invented by the in the West, but some evil people in the West, okay? Very important. Yeah, I think it's good to remember that a lot of these concepts and ideas, while rooted actually in Gnosticism and Hermeticism, to cults that should be familiar to most Christians, uh, is that a lot of the ideas were codified and formed and so forth by really bad uh, German uh, ideological philosophers and, and bad French ideological philosophers, and, and, and even you could say Swiss to some extent when you're talking about Rousseau. Um, but something that also I just want to comment on, we've only got a couple minutes left, is, I don't know if you saw in the paper yesterday, um, or if you saw on, nobody reads the paper anymore, I'm sorry, if you saw online yesterday, is that basically China, Xi Jinping said, you know, as far as those climate goals and so forth that you guys all have these dates on, we're going to take our own time as far as reaching those. Did you see that yesterday? Yeah. So basically where everybody in the world is saying we have to destroy ourselves to reach net zero by 2030. Have you all heard that before? Net zero targets by 2030. It's in all the commercials. Even if you're watching Fox, everybody's saying net zero targets by 2030, which means to completely get ourselves off the petroleum, completely get ourselves off of the way that we've done things in the past, and destroy our economies, because that actually is year zero. But China is saying no, we're not going to follow that timeline. We're going to do our own thing. Anybody have any comments on that? We've got four minutes left. Dr. Lindsay? <laughs> Does it, yeah. Here, I'll trade you. I felt weird holding two of them. I mean, this is no surprise, right? This is what this is. This is when Mike gave his talk earlier. The goal is not actually to achieve net zero emissions by any date whatsoever. It's to get the West to commit suicide so that China can rise in power, and then they can play their game with the Thucydides trap and all that stuff he talked about. That's the idea. The goal with all of this is to get the West to commit suicide. Now imagine they came in and said, no, 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 at the United Nations order, you want to participate in the UN going forward, Mr. Mr. Xi, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to get on board too. He's just going to say, no. And what are they going to do? Okay. They're not going to say anything because that's the nature of what they're trying to build is a system that's led, a world that's led by the model of Xi Jinping and the CCP. And that should scare the pants off of all of us to think that we're going along with this and cheerleading this and putting it on all of our commercials. I walk through the airport, I see the sustainable development goals on the wall every air, major airport I go to now. This is the direction the West is going. We have to understand that it's suicide so that, that China can take over the reign of the superpower of the world. It's a Western country insanity. Maybe that's why Yannan, you know, Curry, and everybody is just flying to China and keep bowing, you know, like this. I mean, like, it's very, very, very embarrassing for, for us to see, you know, Plus, what do they help? When they push like this Green New Deal and uh, United Agenda 2030, you know, achieve nether, whatever, it actually benefits China economy. 
They invited a big Chinese company in Michigan, use taxpayers' money to build a battery factory, and this company is a CCP and PLA company, but they have 80% of battery market. And then all this government money, taxpayers' money, they want to say, hey, can you come here, create jobs, and we need to green new jobs. So, and then the official signed five years non-disclosure agreement with Chinese company. It's like, what? Which side are you on? What do you have to hide, right? They mean, I made a video uh, with my friend because we did research on this Chinese company. They're very deceiving. So their English website, Chinese website, are totally two different things. Hey, you know, we speak the native language. But it's absurd. It's like, uh, okay, you want to talk about climate change, and, but uh, all you do is rely on China for all kinds of factories, supplies, and, and they don't care about environment. They even don't care about human life. So who are you trying to benefit? This is not the American first agenda. It's not even the Western country first. It's just going to destroy our economy and people's rights to make a living. So I, I think we have to do whatever we can to expose them and to call them out, to say, hey, forget about this agenda. We, we need to have our own policies. And those people, WEF, United Nations, they're not elected by us. They have no authority over us. Uh, I'll first of all, thank the panel please, for being here, flying from all sorts of different places. Dr. Lindsay's been at so many conferences lately, and he's going to more. He's going to Young Americans for Freedom in D.C., and again, part of the White Coat Summit. He just got back from TPUSA and all the other things, and then he made it here for, for us. And, you know, let's be thankful for that. But um, I also just want to close then, as we stop, could you really quickly explain What's happening in terms of the dialectical process as we move into 2050 in terms of understanding the yin and the yang that you've explained so, so well about what's happening with our system and the Chinese system and what they're spiraling together for to end up to at 2050? Really quickly. Um, so this is a slightly complicated idea, but I'll try to make it short and simple. Um, so a lot of people are curious. They noticed, for example, that there are are undeniable elements in woke and what's happening in our federal government here in the, in, in the United States, but on to the United Nations throughout the West that look very much like communism. But then you go tell somebody, well, this looks very communist. And they say back, well, it can't be communist because it's using corporations and big banks, and the, the communists don't like corporations, they don't like big banks, they're for the worker. So it's not communist, it's actually fascist. It's more like Benito Mussolini, it's more like maybe even Hitler, but they really focus on Mussolini in this case, who tried to tie, the fascism, if you don't know, comes from the Italian fascio, which means bundle of sticks. It means that you've tied the corporations and the state power and all the people together into one bundle to do things. Um, and so they say, well, it's not communist, it's fascist. So you try to call out the communism and the point of the CCP, and they say, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, on the other hand, you look at China, and they say, well, that's not even purely communist anymore. So what happened with this, we've heard the name many times today, is Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping followed Mao. Mao destroyed China. Deng Xiaoping built the new China. And we already heard that story from Xi. And the, the new China has a communist government and a communist structure and a communist redistribution. You can go there yourself and see it. And uh, at the same time, it has these huge corporations that are making mega bucks. But the thing is, is those are all at the pleasure of the party. So if you upset the party, you don't have 
a company anymore. You might not right. exist anymore. You're definitely not going to be rich anymore. So you're actually a company or corporation or a, a, a market that operates kind of in a bubble controlled by the CCP. On the other hand, here in the West, what they're actually doing is using the corporations and they're going to put the corporate power on top. Our federal government is bound by the Constitution, so it can't do things like take away our free speech. Well, guess what? Facebook can because it's a private company. Twitter can because it's a private company. You know, banks can take away your ability to spend money or credit cards because they're private companies. So they're using corporations to get the totalitarian power they need to take over. But that's not necessarily communism. What they're putting is the fascism on top in the West and the communism inside. So the rich oligarchs at the top are going to have super rich lives based off all the big corporations and they're going to be operating like a fascist government, it's going to be communism for all the poor people, which means death. On the other hand, in China, they have communism in control, but they have a fascist organization to their market underneath that. So those things are like, you know, if Mike said yin and yang, they're the opposites of one another. Well, if you put them next to each other and let the conflict play out, their theory of the world is that opposites come into conflict until they merge into one unified whole. So if you create the two opposing systems that are the same thing but in reverse of each other, like the yin and the yang, and you put them next to each other, then you get the dynamic that drives history to its final one world system. And I believe that that is the big picture of what's actually going on. We'll build a fascism that serves communist uh, agendas throughout the West. We'll use Maoist tactics to break it apart and install something that looks like Deng Xiaoping upside down in the West. And then in China, we already have Deng Xiaoping. We have communism that's using fascism underneath it. And then those two will slowly over time through competition and agreement and whatever conflict merge into one global system that's just totalitarian overall and directed toward what they call the end of history where all the problems are solved. Obviously, heaven on earth, which is what it looks like when communists are in charge every single time. Um, that's, I think, the big picture of what's happening in history, or in, in our, our world right now, is that they're trying to build out the two pieces of that, what they call dialectical conflict, to transform our world into a one giant global governance system that's a mixture of corporate power and government power into one large uh, overarching piece of power that has one hand that can do it through the state, one hand that can do it through the corporation so that you can't ever get away from them no matter what you do. Would you please thank the panel? Kathy King, Saul Fallon, James Lindsay, Mike Zhao, Jivan Fleet, and Lily Tang Williams. We'll be back at 7.30. There's lots of good food around us, folks, so please enjoy. We'll see you at 7.30.